Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 955. To begin this week's program, David Lorelo welcomes Manny Acta, former Major League Manager and current third base coach for the Seattle Mariners. David asks Manny about growing up in the Dominican Republic and wanting to be a ball player, and what it was like to arrive in the United States at a young age. We also hear anecdotes about many players he has managed, worked for, or played alongside throughout his long career, including Frank Robinson, Billy Wagner, Brad Lidge, Roy Oswalt, Tim Redding, and more. Yeah, with uh, cultures in, in mind, Manny, I want to ask you about one of your teammates in the Florida State League when you were 19. He was also 19, and I saw that he hit one home run that year. He went on to hit over 500 in pro ball, the vast majority of them in Japan. I assume you know who I'm referring to. <laughs> yes, my main man, Carl Tuffy Rhodes from Cincinnati, Ohio. Tuffy was uh, was awesome. He was one of my favorites. He actually took most of us uh, Latinos under his wings and gave us rides to the ballpark in his truck. After that, Dan Zimborski is joined by Ben Clements to talk about the Phillies and Angels, two teams with plenty of promise that also have some serious holes to fill. Dan and Ben discuss these clubs' respectively lopsided outfields and go over some of the free agent pitchers still available and why they may or may not fit these teams in need of some help. The conversation also pivots to things like Carlos Martinez and the St. Louis Cardinals and their own impressive outfield and even their own pitching needs. The problem that the Cardinals have is that they really needed Max Scherzer or Marcus Stroman. I think Marcus Stroman would have been a very interesting addition just because Steven Matz is kind of, you know, you're at the store and you say, Mom, we'd like Marcus Stroman. And she says, we have Marcus Stroman at home. That's Steven Matz. Like, he's what Stroman is, just not as good at anything. And I think that they really needed more top end of the pitching rotation. But before we get to these segments, I must implore you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only can you find Fangraphs merch, but you can get an ad-free membership for yourself or for a friend. It is the best way to both browse a site and to support the site, helping us to keep doing everything we do. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorela. My guest is Manny Acta, third base coach for the Seattle Mariners. Manny, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Hi, Dave. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. Uh, it's great to be talking to you again. Let's start, Manny, actually, with uh, with your early days in the game. We're going to talk a lot about you know topical things, but let's go back in time, ancient history, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> You grew up in uh, San Pedro de Macari, which is the birthplace of, I believe it's now over 100 players who, who have played in the big leagues. And it's also known as a shortstop hotbed. Uh, did you grow up dreaming of being a big league shortstop? Yes, uh, absolutely. I, I grew up uh, right outside San Pedro, uh, the sugarcane factories of uh, Santa Fe and Ingenio Consuelo. Basically, those are the places where most of the players come from, but uh, they belong to San Pedro de Macorís, so, and that's a big name that you always hear. But Ingenio Consuelo is actually where most of the big-time players from that area come from. Sammy Sosa, Rico Cardi, Alfredo Griffin, Juan Samuel, uh, Pepe Frias, uh, Julio Franco, myself, and, and a few more. And you did not reach the big leagues, but you did sign, I believe, at 17 and play in the minors with the Astros for uh, about five years. How did signing with the Astros come about? 
Well, as you mentioned before, I, I did grow up uh, uh, dreaming of being a, a big league shortstop, seeing Alfredo Griffin, uh, Pepe Frias, Julio Franco, Rafael Ramirez, you know, Manny Lee, all those guys under my nose, right in, in our um, city. And uh, once, once you, you start growing up in the Dominican Republic, that's sort all there is. It's baseball and basketball. We don't have that, that many choices as here in the United States. Also, I had the opportunity to be a neighbor of uh, Tony Fernandez, who was a very good friend of mine, too. And, and obviously, everybody wanted to be like Tony, too. But I had the opportunity to, to sign with the Houston Astros, which was a great, great thing for me. And also a big coincidence, too, because growing up, I was a, a baseball fan of uh, the Houston Astros and the Boston Red Sox. Back in the days, you used to have a team in each league. The Astros used to be in the National League. That came about because I like colors and I used to love that rainbow uniform. Also, because back in those days, they would only uh, have one game a week on the radio or on TV. And uh, the Astros used to have a lot of players from back home. Uh, one of my favorite players was Cesar Daniel. They used to have Joaquin Andujar. Then they used to have Luis Pujols, Rafael Landestoy. And then they also had the Puerto Rican players like Jose Cruz, uh, Dickie Thon, just to mention a few. And I, uh, I grew up being an Astros fan. And uh, it was a big coincidence that Mr. Julio Linares, who was the scout who signed me, uh, saw me playing baseball and signed me up in 1986. Uh, so I ended up spending six years in the minor leagues with the Astros. The last year was in 1991, where I was asked to become a player coach. And, uh, and that was it for me. I got the message. And I want to move on to that in a minute, Manny. But first, what was it like for you to play in the low minors as a, a teenager from the Dominican? Ouch. Uh, that, was, that was really hard. Um, you know, nowadays, I know that we continue to fight for those guys in the minor leagues and MLB has done a tremendous job of improving the housing and everything that comes about those guys. But it was really hard. I mean, I came over to the States in 1987 to uh, Sarasota, Florida. I couldn't speak English very well. All I had was a little bit of high school uh, English, just the way you guys have it here, the Spanish. And uh, couldn't communicate, couldn't, couldn't speak English. So it was very hard. Uh, the culture, the food, it was a shock. First of all, we cook with a lot of seasoning back home. Might not be the healthiest, but it, it's really tasty. And uh, we struggle with the food as soon as we got over here. You know, dinner was, saved, was served at 5.30 in the complex, Twin Lakes Park over there in Sarasota. And after that, we were free to do whatever we wanted to, but the closest thing to the complex was a Burger King that was like three and a half miles away. And um, it was really hard for us. No one had a car or anything. So uh, those first couple of months were really tough. We had to lean a lot on each other and uh, uh, try to learn English as quick as possible. Um, reading newspapers, especially baseball, helped me a lot. Also, I, I, bought, a, I bought a book called Basic English, who... Tony Fernandez recommended it to me when he first signed. It had 800 words, and he promised to teach you to speak English with 800 words. And so it kind of helped me out a little bit. And uh, I was able to, to pick it up from my teammates and, and adjust. And in a couple of months, I was loving the United States. 
Yeah, with uh, cultures in, in mind, Manny, I want to ask you about one of your teammates in the Florida State League when you were 19. He was also 19, and I saw that he hit one home run that year. He went on to hit over 500 in pro ball, the vast majority of them in Japan. I assume you know who I'm referring to. <laughs> yes, my main man, Carl Tuffy Rhodes from Cincinnati, Ohio. Tuffy was... Uh, was awesome. He was one of my favorites. He actually took most of us uh, Latinos under his wings and gave us rides to the ballpark in his truck because it was it was hard to get to the ballpark here in uh, Kissimmee, Florida. And and Tuffy was really good to us. He was a a very good hitter back in those days. Except that you know he he was a inside out type of guy who wasn't fully developed yet physically. And he just hit a lot of line drives to left field, uh, hit the ball all over the park, uh, knew how to play the game uh, at a young age, play a solid defense in left field. He he was able to run. As a matter of fact, our team set a record for stolen bases for the Florida State League uh, in that season. And he was one of those guys that stole probably over 40 bases. Carl was just fantastic. I haven't seen him in years. He's a guy who was constantly working and, and try to make adjustments. And I'm sure he adjusted his swing. And we saw part of it that opening day when he hit three homers for the Cubs. But then Tuffy went to Japan and he just went off. And uh, all of us were very happy for him and just surprised because we never saw him as a power hitter. He just used to slap the ball to left field a lot. And he became a superstar in Japan, of course. And, <laughs> yeah. and some, somewhat curiously, he is not in Japan's Hall of Fame. I I believe he is still on the ballot. Let's segue, Manny, into somebody who may or may not ever get into the Hall of Fame here in the United States, somebody who did get my vote last year and this year. Billy Wagner was on the team in your first managerial job in the minor leagues. I believe that was, is it 93? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, he, uh, Billy Wagner at the time was a 21-year-old left-handed starter. What else can you tell us about Billy Wagner in <laughs> 1993? Yeah, that was a great experience. That was my first year managing in Pro Bowl, 1993. I was, I believe I was 23 years old, and uh, I didn't want to take the job. I told my boss, Fred Nelson, who was a farm director in Houston, I said, Fred, how, how can you want me to go manage in the New York Penn League when I'm only 23? You know, the, I'll be managing guys that be seniors out of college at 21, 22, five-year seniors that are 23. I mean, that's, that's hard. He goes, hey, you don't have to tell them how old you are. Don't worry about it. And uh, so my first year, I get our first-round pick, Billy Wagner, I'm a Dominican guy who was just barely, you know, speaking English well enough. And Billy's from West Virginia, first round pick. I was intimidated. I was like, oh, gosh, how is this guy going to take me managing him and being the first round pick, all the responsibility and all that. And uh, so Billy showed up later than most of the guys in the team. And we only had one locker left and he was uh, in a corner. Uh, which was very uncomfortable. And I'm like, oh, this guy's just going to throw a fit when he comes in. Well, Billy's one of the nicest guys that I ever been around. He came in and he was just so happy that he had a locker because Billy played Division Three in Ferrum College and 
used to tell me stories that he didn't even have someone to play catch with at times. So he used to throw the ball as far as he could and then jog over there, pick it up and throw it back. So Billy was outstanding. He was very happy. <laughs> I took a deep breath and, uh, and, and we had a very good relationship to this date. Uh, he, he basically overmatched umpires at times in the New York Penn League because he used to throw a curveball at the beginning of, uh, of his career over there. And he threw so hard back in those days, 94, 97, with, uh, with those slow guns. And he had that hammer. And a lot of those umpires in that league just couldn't call it a lot of times. But uh, he had his start there, and then he moved on. And you know, I ended up reuniting with him in, uh, in New York when he was our closer for the Mets. Uh, and he has the numbers. He has the numbers. Uh, his numbers compare really good with a lot of guys that are in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, hopefully he gets a shot someday. No, 100%. And Billy Wagner is not the only elite pitcher that you had as a minor league manager. A few years later in high A, you had uh, Brad Lynch and Roy Oswald. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a minor leagues manager dream. I had at that time Tim Redding, who was a, the, the highly touted prospect at that point. Brad Lynch, who was our first round pick. And Roy Oswald. So I, I tell you a funny story. We went one day to play Tampa Race here in St. Petersburg. Roy Silver was the manager. And not too many people knew about Roy Oswald. And Brad Lidge had been hurt the first couple of years of his career. So, you know, nothing to it. Everybody knew about Tim Redding because Tim had a, an outstanding season in Quad City the year before. He was able to throw 100 miles per hour, and he just dominated through the minor leagues. So we go to St. Pete, and uh, we face them. And the first day, Tim Redding goes out there and just shuts him out for seven innings, and we win. And the next day, I see Roy Silver in batting practice, and he goes, hey, wow, that Redding guy, I guess he's legit. Huh? Everything we heard of him was true. And, uh, well, we'll see what we can do today. I said, well, you know, the guy that I'm throwing today is pretty good. He was a first-round pick, and, uh, you know, he's healthy now, and, and he's throwing the ball really good. He goes, oh, we'll see. Brad Lidge goes out there and shoves it for seven strong innings. No chance whatsoever. So next day I see <laughs> Roy Silver, and he goes, woof, that was tough. I'm glad we're over those two guys. And I said, really? wait until you see the little guy who's pitching today. <laughs> and that was Roy Oswald. So uh, he went out there and just dominated them. And uh, those three guys, it was like a dream job. I just sat there those three days. They, they went seven innings. Nobody touched them. And, and then uh, they didn't last long with me. Uh, the second half of the season, uh, they moved up to, uh, to Double A for Round Rock. Jackie Moore was a manager, and they ended up helping him. Uh, win the championship over there but it was uh it was just uh, uh great to have those guys and and if i mentioned to you that one of the other starters was wilfredo rodriguez who was uh another top prospect who ended up i believe he gave up barry bonds uh 70th homer uh for the astros he was another guy who who could bring it up to close to 100 miles per hour so pretty good team to be the manager uh, in a ball and you, of course, went on to manage uh, a couple of big league teams. You were in Washington and Cleveland. Before that, Manny, uh, you were Frank Robinson's third base coach with the Montreal Expos. What was Frank Robinson like? <laughs> uh, 
rough if you didn't know him. I would always be thankful. He was one of my mentors. And uh, he was really rough if you didn't get to know him very well. Once he let you in in his circle, he was outstanding. He was like a, like a father figure for me on those three years that I was with him. Frank, I owe him a lot because I had the opportunity to go coach for Frank without knowing him based on uh, Tom McCraw who was one of his best friends. He talked to Johnny Lewis, who used to work here in Houston when I was working for the Astros. And Johnny Lewis recommended me to, to McCraw, and McCraw recommended me to Frank. And that's how I ended up getting that job. What I owe to Frank was that once he got to know me and let me in his circle, he gave me the freedom to do just about everything with the Expos. We had a, a coaching staff that was a little bit old, and um, Frank gave me the freedom to coach third. I worked with the infielders. I did the base running. I used to help McCraw back in those days because it was only one hitting coach uh, to put together the hitting groups and all that kind of stuff, organize a number of, of things uh, on the field. So helping out Wendell Kim, helping out Eddie Rodriguez, who were the guys that, that were the bench coaches back then, Brad Mills. So Frank gave me that freedom to do all that. And I believe that when a lot of the clubs in the big leagues started seeing me doing a lot of stuff, being just 32 years old when I started, that's probably how my name started to go around in the big leagues. And I started getting interviews and, and, and stuff. Uh, but Frank was, was rough around the edges, but uh, he was also a, a really good human being. He really cares. And, you know, he just had that old school way to go about his business and, uh, and never change. And uh, just at the end, he kind of softened up a little bit because times kind of demanded that. And, and once you play for him, you love them because uh, he held uh, everybody accountable. And we should talk uh, managing and interviews, but first I want to circle back quickly to, uh, you mentioned earlier that you grew up being a fan of the Astros and Red Sox. I happened to see Manny, you admitted in, in an interview at some point that when you were a kid, you used to argue that Jerry Remy was better than Willie Randolph. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. And to me, Carlton Fisk was always ever better than Munson and, and so on and so on. I mean, that's that's what I did. <laughs> yeah, I, no disrespect to uh, Jerry Remy, who of course passed a few months ago. <laughs> but I know that. It, let me think back to the year 2012, I believe it was. I interviewed both you and Mike Chernoff, who at the time was the assistant GM in Cleveland about lineup construction. And one of the things that you told me was, you can't steal first base. So <laughs> I, I think Willie Randolph <laughs> yeah. had a little better OBP than than Jerry <laughs> yeah, Remy. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I was just being blind by by the, the team that I followed. To me, everyone in the Red Sox were better than the Yankees back then. <laughs> no, and I I would have thought exactly the same hey, way. There was no shortstop better than Rich Burleson to me. <laughs> the rooster. <laughs> yeah. The rooster was very good. Uh, you no longer have the option, Manny, at least not when you're you know on the field. You need to be subjective. Uh, you are not managing now. How different of a manager would you be today than you were? Uh, we first spoke in 2010 when you were managing Cleveland. Are you the same guy now as you were 11 years ago? Not at all. And, and I think uh, a lot of people are under, <laughs> under you know, the, the impression that I am. Obviously, uh, what got me 
my opportunities in D.C. and in Cleveland was uh, my style back then. We're talking about I was 37 years old and we're talking about 2007. And I was very organized and very disciplinarian. And I was running, rebuilding teams and always felt that whatever happened on the field, be bad in practice or be game will be a reflection on me because I was very young. I didn't want people to think that, oh, this guy can't control those guys. He's running a circus out there. So I I sweated a lot of small things that shouldn't be sweated. And uh, my mentors, especially the, the last guy, last two guys that I worked for, Frank Robinson and Willie Randolph were old school guys. I, I was never around somebody that could advise me when things were about to change around 2010 uh, with the communication with the players and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So to me, that's what, that's what drew teams to me back then. Uh, I was uh, uh, kind of a hot managerial prospect to a fact that in 2010, when I ended up choosing the Indians, there were only two jobs available and both were offered to me, the Astros and the Indians. But, you know, times change. And, and I guess, you know, a lot of people think that I haven't. I have because uh, once I've been out of the managerial office, I went to ESPN and, you know, you're outside looking in now. You can see how the 30 teams do things instead of you just being in your own ball club and, and your own bubble. And then I started to see, you know, the, the Joe Maddens of the world and how things are done. Uh, from Tony LaRusa and, and everybody else. I always grew up idolizing Bobby Cox, LaRusa, Leland, and Felipe Alou, and then working for Frank Robinson. Those are old school guys, and the game was kind of changing a little bit. So once I started working in ESPN, and then I went to Seattle now, these last six years have been outstanding because I've been able to, to be outside looking in and see how important the communication and the relationship with the players is. Back in the days, I try to keep my distance. It's, you know, I communicate, but there's a line that I don't cross, you don't cross. Nowadays, that's that's over with. Nowadays, you know, you have a Slack group, the app on the phone, or you have a WhatsApp group where everybody, uh, it's communicated through it and, and knows everything. And also, I was very young. When I, when I was uh, a very young managing I didn't think I had the best relationship, let's say, with the pitchers or the relievers because I always worked with the infielders as a manager. I always stayed hitting ground balls and around the batting cage. So I didn't know what Tony La Russa would, was doing back then. And now I see what our manager, Scott Service, does. is during batting practice, you walk around and talk to every player and you know you build relationship. Back then, I was just hitting ground balls the whole batting practice. and. Uh, I didn't know any better. So when the game starts, I'm hanging out with the players that I was hanging out with during batting practice, and I haven't even seen my relievers. They're in the, in the bullpen the whole game, just second-guessing everything that goes around because that's what they have nine innings for. And, uh, and then uh, I didn't build a good relationship with, uh, with some of those guys. But um, seeing the way Scotty does things, how we do things in Seattle, how everybody else does it, uh, I understand that a lot of times I was just sweating a lot of small stuff, like, you know, whether a guy's wearing a hat or not, whether a guy's cutting off his fleece, whether a guy's, for Christ's sake, you know, Belichick and Tito Francona cut off their, 
their their sleeves and you know those are those were the kind of things that because I grew up idolizing Bobby and and Frank and and some of those guys I wouldn't dare to do myself but times were changing and I just didn't have anybody to sit down with me and, and talk me through it and, and make me realize and stop sweating some of that small stuff that players really don't care about but I'm telling you this because it's it's kind of weird that a lot of people probably think that I'm that I'm old or something but I I'm just going to turn 53 in a few days and um you know I uh I'm not complaining and I will never cry racism or anything like that because I I've gotten my opportunities and maybe when I had my opportunities there were people who deserved some opportunities and were wondering the same thing so I have to get back in line again and uh wait let people get their opportunities and uh if it comes around I'll be ready I feel like now I'm better prepared than when I was 37 years old, obviously. But that being said, if I uh, if I don't get another chance, well, I'll just continue to to stick around the game and help people get better. Because you are still a young man, Manny. <laughs> <laughs> I believe so. Maybe some no, people don't think so. <laughs> no, 52, 53 is not that old. We're running short on time. I do want to hit on a few other things. You just brought up Bill Belichick. I can say that while he's a Hall of Fame coach, I think you're probably a better interview than Bill Belichick <laughs> tends to be. <laughs> Yeah, Manny, we have actually done a handful of interviews over time, you know, the original being in 2010, back when I was at Baseball Prospectus. At the time, you said that you spoke to the front office in Cleveland on nearly uh, a daily basis. I assume that in Seattle, that Scott certainly, and maybe you speak on a daily basis with the front office. Absolutely. You know, I owe a lot to the front office in Cleveland because I, I have always been analytical inclined and uh, and they're very analytical and they're very good people. Uh, the, first of all, they're outstanding uh, people over there in Cleveland. That front office is, is top notch and that's why you see that some of those guys are, are moving and becoming GM somewhere else. Ownership group was outstanding too. So I learned a lot over there, a lot. And uh, yes, we had communication, daily communications, and the game has changed. Uh, and today you even have more communication than what I had with, with Chris and Mark and, and Mike back in those days. Uh, we, we do realize that we work together. That's what a lot of people don't want to understand, that the times have changed. And, and the, the times of I hire you, you, you manage the clubhouse and the players, and, and I stay up here in the front office and you do your thing, I do my thing. Those are over because uh, we need to work together. And also the GM is the one who hires you. You need to realize that. So how, how, how is it possible that I'm going to hire you and, uh, and you're, you're not even going to have a conversation with me? You're not going to listen to me or you're going to tell me, you know, get off my uh, clubhouse or whatever. I'm going to run my clubhouse. You run your front office. You can't do that. I hire you. If you act that way with me, then you know our relationship is not going to be good and we're not going to stick together uh, as a team very long. I learned all that over the last eight years that I was a GM in winter ball. So now being in both sides of it, I understand better of the relationship situation. And you know, a lot of things are exaggerated about lineups and all that kind of stuff. And I, I just don't see it. I haven't seen it yet. 
where somebody comes down from the front office and just hands a line up to the managers that I've been around with or to myself. You know, you can have a conversation and you can, you know, talk about certain topics, uh, about certain guys in the lineup and matchups and all that kind of stuff. But time has changed so much that now uh, you have the analytical department uh, really tied up to the on the field staff. And, and, and that way, you know, things can can run smooth. So uh, the game is the same in the 30 teams. You know, whoever tells you different might be lying. No, in uh, June of 2017, Manny, and this fits right in with that, you told me that every team has the same access to analytics. It's a, a matter, I'm paraphrasing here you a bit, it's how much you have the courage to actually push the envelope. So I believe that is the time where you suggested to me that we're not too far away from teams playing the man <laughs> short in the infield and having four man outfields. And I remember hearing that thinking, well, yeah, maybe once or twice a year against maybe a Joey Gallo. As it turns out, several teams actually did that this year. So you were a few years uh, ahead of the curve. I tell you what, what's important here, Davis, uh, it continues to be the same thing. Everybody has access to, to the same information. I mean, uh, there, there are not that many geniuses, you know, out there. Everybody has them, all the numbers, all the data, all the data. And I, I tell you what, it always been that way, that everybody has the info is who has the courage to use it and not be afraid to be criticized because... I see teams are coming to town and play our players in a way. And then the very next series or two series later, I see a team that totally different. And it's not that they don't have the same information. It is the same guy who pulls everything on the ground. It is the same guy who hits the, the fly ball to left field. And then what is the difference? There's no difference in the stats. So things haven't changed. And, uh, that, that brings me to, to the point of people even thinking about stopping the, the shifts. Why? Why, why? why should any team be penalized for being smart or for having the courage to, to follow the, their data? And, and especially since the, the rule of baseball are very clear, besides a catcher who's in foul territory, as long as you keep your eight guys in, in front of the plate in fair territory, who cares where I play them? It is your job to, to, to do something about it, you know, and, and it's about the, the hitters today. It's about everybody has access to info. Every team should be able to identify the hitters that should be able to be lifting balls. Every team should be able to identify the player who should be able to be hitting line drives. And every team should be able to teach guys to use the whole field because I'm not bothered by the shift. I, I can shift. Big guys that are pull hitters that are trying to hit home runs all day. When he bothers me, it's when a guy that is 5'10", 170, who is not projected to hit 15, 20 homers, not even 20, being shifted. When you should have the ability to use the whole field or if the, short, the, second, the third baseman goes back way too early, be able to drop a bunt, at least to make sure, drop a bunt just to make sure that the defense goes back to normal the next time you come around. And, and that's the type of thing that is it's not right right now in the game. I mean, I, I don't mind shifting Gallo, but I shouldn't be shifting utility infielder who's not going to hit 15 homers. Come on now. You, you should be able to look yourself in the mirror and be able to make adjustments and, uh, and change that because some people get paid 
by OPS that is driven for by their slugging. And some people get paid by the OBP, the on-base percentage. So you need to get on base. And at the end of the day, your OPS will be there and you'll get paid. And, uh, and that's the thing that it is getting to the players, but a lot of them, uh, it's, it's taking them a while to realize that. And, you know, we see that uh, in the big leagues and it should start from the bottom. And with players uh, realizing things, Manny, uh, go back to another thing from it was also 2017. You are one of many people I spoke to for an article at Fangraphs that was titled, Are Today's Analytically Inclined Players Tomorrow's GMs? Oh, your, re- yeah. your response to that included that eventually it's going to happen, but it will take a little while. Sam Fold and Chris Young are GMs now, so maybe this happened a little more quickly than, than you imagined. Yes, it is, and uh, it's happening. It's happening at the big league level now too. There are, there, there. You know, Brandon McCarthy is another guy who stopped playing recently, and 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 and, and is very analytical inclined. And 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 there are a ton of guys now that are actually playing in the big leagues that that understand, you know, what what that's all about, and 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 realize that this is what you're going to get paid based on. But at the end of the day, if it's going to affect their playing time or something else, you know, then, then they, they turn deaf about it. And you have to understand that even in, in, in the coaching ranks, there are people that still don't want to give in to uh, the importance of, uh, of scoring a run instead of uh, driving a run by a broken bat, ground ball to shortstop and all that. It's a process that is going faster than what I thought. You're right. But but still, we got a little bit of ways to go because you usually have a battle, especially with the pitchers all the time with the third time uh, through the order because of the competitiveness. Not every single one of you can go through the lineup three times, but uh, it's good to have somebody that thinks that they can do it. But you always have that battle there, you know, in every staff, not everybody can do it, but when it comes to, to making a decision, whether I'm going to pull you out of the game or I'm going to leave you out there, then they don't want to believe that. <laughs> they, they go up against, you know, the, the stats and the numbers, whatever they said. Oh, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. No, you can't. And uh, I think uh, we have made a lot of progress, but still, it, it has to start in the bottom. And a lot of teams are, are doing a very good job. It is not just like back in the days when only the Oakland A's kind of had something set up about the, the on-base percentage to move kids from level to level, or or so are people saying. I, I never worked over there. But just about every team now, it's uh, up to date with the analytics, or with the technologies, and, and educating the players, starting in rookie ball. And the Mariners are certainly among those teams. And I think, Manny, that we could probably talk baseball here for another hour, but I think that we've pretty much run up against the clock. So uh, let's close with uh, me saying, you know, I hope your holidays were good and uh, I wish you the best in in the new year. Well, thank you, Dave. Uh, I wish you the best. I had the greatest holidays ever. I I spent that with my whole family for the first time in 25 years and I'm looking forward to spring training and what the Mariners are bringing because uh, we uh, we're coming and, uh, and, and hell is coming with us. Like Wyatt Earp <laughs> said in the movie. Yeah. And hopefully spring training, Manny, that I will see you that we get this uh, pesky lockout settled in time. Yes. I, uh, <laughs> I, I trust both sides and, uh, and we're going to get something done and we're going to be playing baseball in, in March. 
Yeah, fingers crossed because uh, I do not trust both sides. So, uh, <laughs> thanks again, Manny. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to Fangrass Audio. Thank you, Dave. I'm Dan Zaborski for Fangraphs, and with me today is Ben Clemens. And we're here to talk about events of a baseball-y character. That's a nice announcery voice you got there. Yeah, I I just got over a cold, and now I'm enunciating my words. <laughs> Where I'd like to start us off is two teams that still have a lot of work to do when the winter resumes. The Philadelphia Phillies and the Los Angeles Angels. They're both yeah. teams with some insanely high-level players, but so many holes, they struggle year in, year out to get above 500. So, Ben, you've been dragooned by the Angels to work in their baseball galleys, and it's now your job to make the Angels competitive this winter. Ooh. When we have winter again, I guess that's how <laughs> it works, uh, what will you do first? That is an interesting question. I think the first thing I would do if I became the Angels was try to have real pitchers. I know it's... Uh... It's never been proven that you need to have pitching, like five starters of decent quality to win in baseball, but I would still prefer to. And I think that they just don't really have the horses to have what I would consider a good pitching staff. Look, I mean, that's harsh, but who, who do you think their fifth starter is? <laughs> the, the, their fifth starter is a Mookie Shrug. Right. And they're doing a six-man rotation, so <laughs> it gets worse from there. So in free agency, who will you go after at this point? Because one of the problems is a lot of the more durable, dependable pictures are already off the board. I mean, Kevin Gosman, he's gone. Robbie Ray, right. gone. Eduardo Rodriguez, gone. And the guys left are either not great or have some kind of injury question. Uh, the two that are great with injury questions are, you know, Carlos Rodon and, and Clayton Kershaw. Yeah. Would you advocate the the angels going after one of them and maybe lure kershaw away from ending up with a texas team which i guess people are pre-planning him to do just like they pre-planned bernie williams going to arizona but wait who 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 interests you the most of the two if any i think Rodon is the most interesting pitcher to me and i have been looking for six-man rotation fits for him for quite a while because i just don't think that he makes sense as a pitcher who you're going to use you know every fifth day it's clear that he has some injury issues and the angels are not planning on using their pitchers every fifth day. So it's just, you know, it naturally tracks without having to do too much extrapolation. I think they'd have a hard time getting Kershaw without spending more than really makes sense to trade for Kershaw between the fact that the Dodgers will definitely get the, you know, the benefit of the doubt in any tie scenario and the Texas teams have the tax discount and why would Kershaw want to go to the Angels after playing for the Dodgers so long? I think that one's just tough. But I thought Rodon made sense there, even when there were a lot more pitchers on the market. Do do any of the kind of, I hate to say lesser talents, but I guess the Matt Boyd tier, do any of them interest you with the Angels? Because you look at their rotation, and even the guys who are really good in the rotation, they have significant injury concerns. I know we love Otani, and we know he's awesome and great, but he also has not been durable in and out season after season, you're always kind of going to be worried about his arm, uh, at least until, you know, he has a few more 170 innings seasons under his belt. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Noah Syndergaard, you had to be concerned about his health. I mean, his upside is huge, but it, it right. feels like the Angels aren't quite being run as a contending team in this way because they're going for upside plays that are very risky. Are there any pictures that you feel would be not great, but at least not quite as risky because that's been the Angels' problem. They just have their rotations break down every year. 
Yeah, there's actually a huge swath of those types of pitchers. You know, Michael Pineda is not going to get you a 6-4 season, but he's no one would argue that he's super durable and super likely to show up. I think similarly, Zach Grinke is in that category. There's some chance he's cooked, but even if he's cooked, that's 100 innings of, you know, slightly below league average pitching. That's okay for them because they might need it. Kwang Hyun Kim kind of fits that bill. I, in fact, I think he will deliver above average pitching when he does pitch. There's not a lot of, I mean, I know Zip still loves him, and I don't think, or I think Zip still loves him, and there's not a lot of reason to think he's going to be awful. Zip still loves him, I can verify. Yeah, he's um, he's always been the guy where I'm like, wow, Zips really likes this guy. <laughs> hey, Zips did not, was not that far off with him. No, there, I know. There That's were the reasons to like him. He's been uh, I remember, good. I think you wrote an article about it when they signed him, didn't you? I did. I ran projections for someone. I'm trying to remember who it was. I think I didn't work here yet, but I used those projections you ran on someone else's article to write about him on the Cardinals blog. Well, that, that still works, too. I mean, his ERA is under three now in, in essentially a full season of play. Uh, so it's kind of weird that you haven't seen more interest in him so far this winter. Yeah, I think I think there's some chance that he is just not in a rush. You know, that, that happens with guys, and that that has slowed his market. But I would be interested in them signing one of those guys. That's, like, the first place you have to go if you're the Angels. And then after that, I don't know, like, you've run their Zips projections, right? I have. How many wins did you have them for? I had them for about 83 wins, which seems like the standard yeah. the standard Angels projection. See, it's fine to have a standard projection if you're the Cardinals and you project them for 88 wins 88, every year. right. <laughs> But it's 80. less exciting when your project when your standard projection is eighty three wins. Indeed. So I guess the the place that you can reasonably upgrade that team then is shortstop. And what about outfield? You still you have yeah. Trout, and there's this weird situation where the Angels have a league average outfield because of Mike Trout, and six divided by three is two. Right. But you kind of want to use Mike Trout to win games, not just to cancel out. The, the fact that you're pretending Justin Upton is still a great player or that a, Joe Adele is necessarily going to be good in 2022. I like the way that uh, that Jason has set them up on roster resource with Brandon Marsh starting in center. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I'm a believer in Brandon Marsh. I think that he is going to deliver a at least average in the end year, you know, through various defense and being a good base runner and yeah, hitting a little bit kind of methods i buy him as a reasonable center field starter and if you have that in trout then it's kind of weird to get another outfielder because you don't really have the uh the slush fund of putting somebody in dh if you need to because of otani so i would be a little bit worried about having four outfielders i want to play and joe adele unless you're trading joe adele it was funny when i put together the graphic uh using jason's playing time you know it says trout upton 4.0 marsh trout 3.0 and people are asking me so does zips really like brandon marsh or justin upton i'm like no, no. zips really likes mike trout and i had a challenge out there like guess what percentage of that projection is <laughs> just mike trout right i guess it's like when you're having like a like a father-son golf game and your dad's like tiger woods in his prime yeah like or the um most home runs by a father-son duo yeah, it's like, well, we have uh, Barry Bonds and his eight-year-old kid or something. Yeah, exactly. They're almost tied with him and Bobby. Yeah, they're, they're doing great. Uh, so let's, let, we, I guess we can move on from the Angels. But do you think that there is hope for this team? I do. I think you and I would basically agree that their issue is that they have some highs and some lows. And I think it's easier for teams like that 
to fix holes without too much trouble in free agency. And also, it's a lot easier for Tyler Wade to surprise to the upside and be an average player than it is for them to just say, oh, well, our whole team's full of average players and we need several guys to take the leap. I think their team construction always makes it feel like they're closer to contending than they are. But I think that they're in a spot where if they sign two pitchers I like or one pitcher I like and a shortstop, then I'm pretty interested in them next year. Uh, Now, along the same vein of teams that are kind of around 500, but have some pretty solid players, I want to move on to the Philadelphia Phillies. They have some pretty big highs. I mean, they have Bryce Harper. They have two excellent starting pitchers in Aaron Nola and and Zach Wheeler. They have a pretty decent bullpen now, better than last year. Uh, They they still have uh, JT Realmuto, who's obviously going to, you know, on a yearly basis challenge to be the best catcher in baseball. Uh, But in this kind of competitive phase, the Phillies have not done better than their 82-80 record. So they're kind of another team that's over the hump that doesn't seem all that urgent about things. Uh, So their outfield situation, how do you feel about that? Do you think they need another pitcher? I think everybody needs another pitcher. They definitely need another pitcher because I don't really know anything about Hans Kraus and we have him as their fifth starter right now. That seems bad. That doesn't seem good to me. (laughs) But yeah, every team needs more pitching. I think that that is when I was writing up team needs and looking at the free agents for this offseason, I just, every team I went past, I was like, oh, that team needs more pitching. Well, that team needs more pitching. But I I really do think that they need more pitching. Like, yeah, maybe Zach Eflin provides some of that bulk, but they just need another guy. That's the bottom line there. And I also think they, more so than that, though, because they could just sign any bulk guy there. They need outfielders badly. I was kind of disappointed they didn't go after Starling Marte. I thought that he would have been a good fit for them because he can play center field still. I have a feeling that if if Mickey uh, Moniak, if his last name was Maniac, he'd be a better hitter. Am I correct? (laughs) I mean, he wouldn't be a worse hitter because that seems hard. So a a team that did get a better set of projections so far was the St. Louis Cardinals. They're a team that you tend to be in an amiable concordance with. So I'm I'm curious how you feel about this team, because if you look at the offensive projections, they're quite positive about the team. They basically see the Cardinals not really doing worse than two wins at any position, including kind of a rebound season for Paul DeYoung. My question, of course, for the team is, do they need another picture? And I know you said they all do, but I really yeah. think the Cardinals do, too. It's just it's a good rotation, but not an exciting rotation. Yeah. I mean, the problem that the Cardinals have is that they really needed Max Scherzer or Marcus Stroman. I think Marcus Stroman would have been a very interesting addition just because Steven Matz is kind of, you know, you're at the store and you say, Mom, we'd like Marcus Stroman. And she says, we have Marcus Stroman at home. That's Steven Matz. Like, he's what Stroman is, just not as good at anything. And I think that they really needed more top end of the pitching rotation. But I completely buy Zips's view of the Cardinals outfield, which I think is probably the uh, the most optimistic view of the Cardinals outfield I've seen out there. Like, these guys are just really good. I think Harrison Bader has been one of the most underrated players in baseball the past few years, because I, I just don't think people understand center field defense very well, basically. <laughs> they don't understand how good, good center field defenders are. And Tyler O'Neill just put up, what, like a five-win season? Thereabouts. I think that less underrated with him and more like, can he keep doing it? But He's a really good player. When Dylan Carlson is the worst of your guys, and he had a quite solid rookie season at, what, 22? It's a good situation there. I think that they're much closer to being across the board good on the positional side than people think. Because everyone thinks it's just all two war players, right? That's the kind of the Cardinals way. But it's not really. They they have a lot of good 
lot of good hitters right now. Now, I guess you could say the rotation is mostly two win players. Yeah, the rotation is kind of classic Cardinals way, but it's been a long time since they had two outfielders each projected for four wins. Yeah, I, it's actually one of the better projections in some time. Uh, they're going to come... I think when we have the final projections, they're going to come out closer to the to the 90-win part of their range than the 85-win part of their range. Yeah, it's been a long time since the Cardinals projected for 90 wins. Yeah, I don't think I ever... I might have. I, I, I forget offhand. Interesting about Tyler O'Neill is Zips actually thought he underperformed what his slugging should have been in 2021. Wow. Zips saw him, based on his hit data, as a 605 slugger. That is... Uh... That would be nice. I understand that there are lots of baseball players who hit the ball hard. Watching Tyler O'Neill really gives me an appreciation for just like the raw physicality that you can use to hit the ball hard because he's not tall. <laughs> hey, Mel Ott wasn't tall and he used his wrists and the, and the foul. And he, he got the job done. Yeah, but I just have more appreciation for clobbered balls. It's not, you know, Aaron Judge with his 75 foot long levers and everything. Tyler O'Neill just, just says it's my biceps against you baseball and he wins. And it, that is very fun to watch when he's connecting. I don't understand how he's as good defensively as he is because he's very fast, but he looks to have not very good instincts and he just makes up for it with speed. I, I find that pretty impressive that he's a good defender too, because he's like a square. He's as wide as he is tall. Wouldn't be surprising if he was kind of hulking and incapable on defense, but he, he's quite good. And so anyway, that, that, that little tidbit is one of the reasons why Zips isn't really projecting much regression at all from him in, in, in 2022. Yeah. By the same token, I also like the short pictures who can throw 98 miles per hour. Right. You know, when Randy Johnson throws, you know, 98 miles per hour, it feels like he should because he's like up in the clouds and he could just, you know, drop it down from there and then it'll accelerate at negative 9.8 meters per second per second. Totally. Agree. But uh, I mean, yeah, obviously, there's more risk of arm injury. Allegedly, I don't know if there's ever really been a clinical study of that or if it's just uh, old wives tale or conventional wisdom. But it, yeah. it, it just feels more impressive to me. And I'm also, by the same token, down on the guys who look like they should have power and then don't. The James Loney tier. James Loney to yes. I was going to bring up Glenn Braggs. Do you remember Glenn Braggs? I don't. But let's look uh, he was a prospect for the Brewers in, in the 80s. Uh, he also played for the Reds. This dude was built and thick, and he just didn't really hit for power. Wow, we list him at 6'3", 210 in the 80s. That is a monster of a man. Yeah, that is that is 80s thin. I mean, every you look at like people wearing 80s uniforms, and you're like, oh, you want to buy them a sandwich. Yeah. Because, you know, I think the even the uniform design kind of outlined the shapeliness of their of their thin legs and thin arms. But Braggs was built like a, a brick something, which I'm I, I probably shouldn't say, but people people know that expression. So I always feel disappointed in that. So wait, to circle this conversation all the way back around in Ooh. a fancy tie out, a short pitcher who throws really hard or is capable of throwing really hard is Carlos Martinez. And I'm curious whether you think that would be a safe signing or an upside signing for these teams we were just talking about who need pitching. <sighs> he did reach free agency. He did. He did reach free agency, and he was better than his ERA. I know that no one will accept that. Right. Because he doesn't look like he should be better than his ERA. He's wild. Yeah, and that, that, that is a problem. And also his velocity wasn't what it was, but it's also, you know, he was also being careful. Uh, I, I don't – personally, I think he's a better fit for a team that – it just isn't very good at all looking for upside. Like, I think Carlos Martinez on the Orioles would be a lot of fun. That makes sense. I, I do wonder what you're getting with him. It, it could be, he could be an all-star. It wouldn't shock me if you're an all-star. 
but he could also just be unplayable. Yeah, and that that's that's kind of a hard ask for a contending team because contending teams you don't necessarily want as much risk as, as, as some teams like the Orioles. I'm actually slowly running Carlos Martinez through Zips now because I actually haven't done that yet this year. A place he could fit actually is oh, wait, yes, I did. like the Dodgers Giants style of team that's planning on using eight nine starters anyway and has a little bit of cash to uh to where they don't care if their seventh starter makes eight million dollars. Yeah, that's what the Dodgers do. They always have like about 14 or so possible starting pitchers. And they say, yeah, you know, it's risky. But when we get like 10 of these guys, we'll just use the guys who work out. Yeah, they're kind of securitizing pitchers. They just buy a bundle and hope that some of those guys work out. I think it's I mean, if you have the money, it's a nice plan. And I think it's a very smart use of their resources. I could see him working there for that reason. But yeah, if you're counting on him to be your fifth starter, it's it's a weird guy to count on to be your fifth starter. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I looked up Zips for Carlos Martinez. I forgot, since they did the Cardinals, obviously I projected Carlos Martinez. Oh, right. Zips is kind of in the middle, has him with like a 4.64 ERA, which is better than last year. But, you know, that would be useful on the Orioles. That would or, be. Or, or, or a number of kind of lousy-ish teams. Because, you know, if you can fix Carlos Martinez, and I think the Dodgers would probably be the team to fix Carlos Martinez because – they had this record of fixing everyone. Yeah. I'm convinced that if Scott Casimir had gone there, yeah. Yeah, if 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 he when his we had his little signing uh with the Giants, if he had gone to the Dodgers, he'd be Rich Hill right now. Just because that's what they do and it's so annoying because they're wealthy and they're smart at this stuff. It just seems rude. That sounds about right. I would be interested in seeing him on the Giants as well. I think that the Giants the Giants like pitchers who throw sinkers recently. And I mean, Martinez throws every pitch. That's kind of a that's kind of the deal with him. But he's got a a perfectly serviceable sinker. I am trying to uh, slowly do some background research here while we talk. But yeah, he has a very low release point in his sinker, which I wrote about recently. Is something that they've been favoring in their pitchers just to get a, a flatter plane on the pitch. It seems like it works pretty well uh, if you can throw sinkers that have movement, but that you're releasing kind of lower. Uh, it just messes with batters eye lines basically and they have also a history of kind of rehabbing guys who i don't know if they've had anyone like martinez you know who has so many pitches but no real plus pitches anymore he used to have five plus pitches and now he might have zero they tend to do better with guys in the kind of kevin gausman mold who have two really good pitches or one really good pitch and i don't know that he's quite that but i would be interested in seeing him go to one of these teams that seems to do a decent job of kind of rehabilitating pitchers whose star has faded but who have talent and yeah the Dodgers would be a nice fit I'm very invested in seeing him succeed because when he pitches well he's very fun to watch yeah and there's a fundamental idea that when you have a a talented pitcher, no matter who you root for you want to see them at their best we briefly got to see Carlos Martinez at his best in like the 2016-2017 time range but you you want to see these guys Succeed and fail on their merits, not their health, if that makes sense. Exactly. Like when he was, he had three years basically where he threw 180 innings each year and an average of 190, let's call it. And he was three war player each of those years. I mean, plenty of players hit that level and that isn't their true talent. But when he was doing it, he was doing it with the fun of a pitcher who was better than that. Well, on that note, since we have been discussing things long, I'm going to wrap us up for now. Uh, for Fangraphs Audio, I'm Dan Zaborski, and I want to thank Ben Clemens for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for, I was going to say thanks for having me on, but no, this is, <laughs> this this is, is our show. Podcast. You had me on too. Yes. Thank me for having me on. <laughs>
Okay, well, thank yourself then. Ben, thank you for having me. This was a this was a Fangraphs blast. Uh, Dan, good to talk to you again. I haven't talked to you since uh, before the holidays, so good to hear your voice. No one's ever said that. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Manny Acta for joining us. Make sure to check out Manny's charity, the Impacta Kids Foundation, at www.impactakids.org. If you enjoyed the podcast, consider leaving us a positive rating or review, or sharing it with a friend. It really helps us out. And don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on everything we have going on at the site. We hope you have a good new year, and we'll talk to you next week.